Bernabe, and uh, uh, Whitstable area, uh, where we live for nearly 10 years. So it's great to be back and to see people again that we know. And thank you for the invitation back to this particular church. We were here about a, a year ago, so it's super to be uh, back with you today. Uh, just to say again about tonight, we've recently been to India, Dubai. I'd like to share something uh, about that, talk about some current issues uh, uh, challenging us, facing us, provoking us uh, uh, within New Frontiers and have some time for question and answers as well. So it'll be a kind of newsy evening, some little bit of Bible teaching here and there, a bit of sharing what's taking place, opportunity for you to ask questions as well because I may be able to bring something from sort of some different spheres to the one that you're in. So, uh, you know, that might be interesting as well. So if you can come along, we'll try and keep it interesting this evening as I will try to do this morning, uh, because uh, I've been asked to speak about heaven. And uh, last year I was asked to speak about the Bride of Christ, and I think in a way this goes on from there today to speak about heaven. So we're going to go to a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to read from verse 12. This will sound nothing like heaven at all, um, but I assure you um, it will kickstart us into that subject. So 1 Corinthians 6 from verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, I'm a great believer in teaching about heaven with relationship to our bodies. And that is actually where we're going to start today. I'm going to talk to you a bit about the body. So, and I'm talking about this physical body, okay? So my very first point this morning is to begin with something of a body check. And we are, as I say, talking about these present physical bodies. So let's have a bit of a checkup on those, shall we? The Western world, I think, gives huge attention uh, to the body, the physical body. So in the West, we want to glamorize the body and we want to preserve the body. It's something of a mark of Western society. And that comes out in all sorts of ways. So uh, think of the fashion market. Think uh, in terms of glamour, uh, how you see that working through fashion. Think of all the shops that we have that are given over to selling of clothes and selling of shoes and selling of bling uh, to accessorize the glamour. Uh, And uh, uh, you can just multiply that into magazines, which are full of adverts about what you can put on, what you can wear, how you can make yourself look better and more glamour. 
glamorous, and then wherever you go where there are advertisements, uh, you've got uh, all sorts of shops and all sorts of uh, adverts from uh, the shops and from the glamour industry that are all around us every day, wherever we see adverts, and it comes on the television and multiplies endlessly. And then, of course, you can add to, the, add to that the cosmetic industry to help uh, uh, the glamorization of the body. Now, when it comes to women's cosmetics, I hardly dare get into that subject, but uh, it's a multi-billion pound industry. Uh, we sometimes go into a very big boots uh, chemist shop not so far from us, and uh, I'm just amazed at the number of counters there are uh, which are displaying different ranges of cosmetics at phenomenal prices, I might add. And uh, uh, you can see there uh, all the attempts that are being made uh, for women to, in some ways, glamorize themselves. But guys, let's recognize that this is increasingly true for men as well. All right, so I have flown a lot over the years and I always flick through the in-flight magazine and you, you have a, a duty-free section and you find as you go th- through that that there's page after page of advertisements, particularly for perfume for women. But now, you will find in these magazines that there are pages and pages of adverts for things like aftershave lotions and potions for men as well. And on one occasion, in one magazine, I found there was 21 pages for the ladies and 19 pages for the men. All right, so this is big money too now for the men. That's why all us guys smell so nice these days, all right? And of course, you then get all the promises that come with the cosmetic preparations, don't you? How it's going to change your looks and how how it's going to take away every blemish and every wrinkle and how you'll look five years, ten years younger. And you know why, don't you? It's because you're worth it, all right? So that's what we're being told all the time. So there is this obsession with how we look in the physical body. And, uh, and then there's also the whole issue of exercise these days. Uh, you know, people are out running and they're jogging and uh, they're going to gyms. And uh, I know that there's a health dimension to that. And I'm really not wonk- wanting to knock the health dimension. But there's another dimension as well. And that is, this is a way that will help you keep more youthful. All right, preserve the body and help you to look more youthful. And then you can add even to that all the possibilities these days of cosmetic surgery. And cosmetic surgery makes a promise to do or undo what nature has done to you or has, done, uh, has not done to you or has done unfairly to you. And uh, cosmetic surgery will attend to that. Now, this is usually a surprise to people. Do you know the country in the world where most cosmetic surgery is done on people's noses? Maybe surprised to hear this. It's Iran, all right. In Iran, there is more cosmetic surgery done on uh, people's noses than in any other country of the world. Now, against all this background of uh, what I've just been saying, let me remind you what the Bible says in two Corinthians four sixteen. Brings us down to earth. Outwardly, we are wasting away. And the message translation is even more incisive, even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart. All right, so that's how the message translation puts it. So there's some bad news about your body, and it's this that finally it is a losing battle. We have mortal bodies, and they will decay and they will die. 
And you can color it, you can remove it, you can lift it, you can reduce it, you can increase it, you can transplant it, you can replace it. But in the end, death will get you. All right? People tell us that uh, there's a decline in the death rate. Let me tell you, there is never a decline in the death rate. All right? The death rate is 100% successful in every community. Now, there is a common idea that has surfaced in the church over the centuries that Christianity has nothing to do with the body. It only has to do with the soul. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Because what the Bible teaches is that salvation, redemption, has as much to do with the body as it does with the soul. In fact, you'll read here in 1 Corinthians 6 that the Lord is for the body. But uh, what we discover in 1 Corinthians 6 here is that there is some wrong thinking amongst the Corinthians about the body. And this is what Paul is picking up in verse 12. So it seems he's speaking probably in a way that is voicing the opinion of some of the members of the Corinthian church. I have the right to do anything. Or if you've got a slightly different translation, everything is permissible for me. So everything's permissible for me. I've got the right to do anything. And this is what some of the Corinthian Christians apparently were saying. And it may have even been rooted in the fact that they had picked up on some of the teaching of Paul himself. And Paul had been teaching about our freedom in Christ. And indeed, we sang about our freedom in Christ just a few minutes ago. And, uh, uh, and so some of them may have been picking up on Paul's teaching on freedom in Christ and saying, well, if we're so free, if we're so liberated, then anything is permissible for me. I have the right to do anything. As long as my soul is saved, my body is free to do whatever it wants. Even, some it seems were suggesting, even that I could visit a prostitute. That's why Paul mentions that in verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? But it's this whole idea that Christianity is only about the soul and it has nothing to do with the body. It's something that also surfaces in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, you possibly have the strongest statement in the New Testament about freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I mean, I don't think you can say it stronger than that. Uh, For freedom, Christ has set us free. I mean, it's just speaking about our total liberation in Christ. Do not let yourselves be uh, burdened again by a, a yoke of slavery. But then in the same chapter in verse 13, interestingly, Paul says this, Brothers, you were called to be free, says it again, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And so Paul was saying, hey, celebrate your freedom in Christ, but don't use your bodies, don't use your flesh in a way that would actually corrupt what Christ has given you in terms of freedom. And that's really what Paul is saying also here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and from verse 12. You can claim that everything is possible, uh, everything is permissible, everything is right for you uh, because you're free in Christ. But understand this, that not everything is good for you, not everything is beneficial. 
And in fact, a claim of freedom can become an excuse for sin. Now also, Paul builds on this in verse 13 about wrong ideas about the body. And once again, he's picking up on some bad thinking. So in verse 13, again, he seems to be quoting what the Corinthians are saying. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And Paul's not actually disagreeing with that. There is a sense in which uh, uh, food, as we know it, and our stomachs, as we know them right now, will come to an end. If you like, God will destroy them both. But then immediately, he makes this comment. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And because Paul brings those two things about the stomach and food being destroyed, and then mentions this other thing about sexual immorality, it seems that probably what the Corinthians were saying was this. Uh, Our stomach is for food. Food is for the stomach. God will at some stage bring an end to both. Well, you can apply that also to sex, so that the body is for sex, and sex is for the body. God will bring an end to both. Therefore, because I've only got one life, I'm free to indulge the body and I'm free to engage in any kind of sex. And Paul says that is wrong thinking about your body. It's you acting as though your body had nothing to do with salvation. In fact, Paul says, your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. So he establishes that as a principle, from which we then go on to a second point, which is this, the future of our bodies. And Paul touches on this in verse 14. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. And this brings us to a point where it's important once again that we get a real grasp on the New Testament's teaching on resurrection. And as soon as we talk about resurrection, then we're talking about something of first importance. You go on in 1 Corinthians and to chapter 15, and in verse 3, Paul says, for what I passed on to you as of first importance is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared, and he gives various people uh, who Jesus appeared to in his resurrection body. But there is also an application that Paul wants to make to us as well about this. So I remind you, 1 Corinthians six fourteen says, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. And so we need to understand there that when Paul speaks about Christ being raised from the dead and we also being raised from the dead, he is talking about a resurrection of the body because Christ was raised in the body. And so when Paul continues to develop this teaching on resurrection in chapter 15, he therefore talks about what happens to our bodies. And in 1 Corinthians 15 And verse 42, he says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. Now, notice the emphasis here on the body. 
The body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. All the emphasis is on the body, which presently is perishable. It will will be buried in dishonor and buried in weakness and buried as a natural body, but it's going to be raised up imperishable, in glory, in power, and as a spiritual body. Just be a little bit careful about the term spiritual body because we could take that as indicating that our body will be in some way kind of ethereal and ghost-like. It will be a spiritual body. Uh, But that's not what Paul means. When he speaks about a spiritual body, and N.C. Wright, a famous modern theologian, has demonstrated this very clearly, when Paul speaks about a spiritual body, he means a body that will be completely led by and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. So it's a a spiritual body in that sense, a body which the Holy Spirit enlivens and leads and gives life to. So we need to understand that Paul's teaching about the future of our bodies is this, that as Christians we're not going to lose our body so that our soul is saved, but our bodies have eternal significance. And uh, our body, not just our soul, but our body will be redeemed, and our body will be raised up, even as Christ was raised in the body. So it's not that the, just that the Spirit of Jesus lives on, so let's uh, worship some vague concept of the Spirit of Jesus living on. Christ rose in the body. And when he did, people touched him. He ate breakfast with his disciples on a beach. He moved about amongst people. People spoke to him. It was all in a risen body. Jesus was really back from the dead. The tomb was empty, and there were many witnesses who said, we have seen Jesus risen again in the body. So we too, because we're in Christ, united to Christ, we shall rise in the body, which will be imperishable, glorious, and powerful. Now, some of you may immediately say to me, hey, you might say that, but when I die, in fact, my body goes into a grave. It's not immediately raised up. But do you remember that when Jesus was dying on the cross, and one of the Uh, thieves who was crucified with him repented and turned to Christ and Jesus said to that dying thief today you will be with me in paradise now Jesus when he died on the cross died in a body and uh, his body was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea his body wasn't in paradise but Jesus said today you will be with me in paradise and the thief who died, his, his uh, body was taken off the cross. And as a crucified criminal, his body would have been thrown into Gehenna, which was the rubbish dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it's where the body of Jesus would have been thrown if, in fact, Joseph of Arimathea had not got permission from Pilate to actually take the body of Jesus. So both the, the body of Jesus and the body of the dead thief were actually 
in physical places. They weren't in paradise. Uh, And what we need to understand is this, that when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, at death, there is a separation between the body and the soul. And the body sleeps in the ground, but the soul is consciously with the Lord. And so Jesus could say to the dying thief, today you will have a conscious sense of being with me. All right? Because your spirit, your soul, will be with me in paradise. Do you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 8? He says, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because actually at death, there is a separation between body and spirit. And so the spirit or soul goes to be with Jesus and to consciously enjoy his presence. Our bodies sleep in the ground. Now, when Jesus comes again, and this is the teaching of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for example, when Jesus comes again, then our bodies will be raised from the grave. And friends, this, I find a lot of Christians don't understand this, don't realize this. When our bodies are raised from the grave, our body will be reunited with our spirit. So we will be, again, body and spirit. We will be then, as we are now, body and spirit. And that will happen again when Jesus comes again at the end of all history. So we'll be as we are now. We'll once again be body as well as spirit, except there's some good news here. Our bodies will be greatly improved when Jesus comes again and raises us up in the body. This provokes another question. What happens for those believers whose bodies are not in the grave? After all, most Christians are, in fact, cremated these days. Um, so there is no body to sleep in a grave. Years ago, I went to Pakistan, and almost as soon as I got off the plane, pastor who picked me up, he said, please, um, when you are preaching to our people, don't mention cremation. We don't believe in it here. All Christian believers in Pakistan are buried because we are waiting for the return of Christ and the resurrection from the grave of the body. Well, I did what I was asked. I didn't mention cremation, but I thought it doesn't really solve your problem um, because if you've been buried for, you know, 1,500 years, there's not going to be much of you left anyway uh, in the grave. And let's face it, some Christians are involuntarily cremated uh, in, you know, a fire or in war. So it doesn't really solve the problem. So uh, what what do we say about this? Well, the Bible answers every question. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 35, Paul says this, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? It's, 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 It's the sort of question people can say today, ask today. Well, if we've been cremated, how can the dead be raised up? With what kind of body will we come? And I love Paul's answer here. He says, what a stupid question. All right, all right. So there, it's in the, in the text. You can see it. He says, how foolish. What a stupid question. But uh, fortunately, he has mercy on us. And he does actually give some teaching. And he explains that our bodies are like seed. And uh, some of you will be gardeners. And you know that a seed can sometimes be a tiny, tiny little speck, almost just like a tiny speck of dust. Some seeds are like that, and you, you put it in the ground, and it dissolves even in that form. 
but God has a purpose for that. And whatever purpose God has, God will actually raise up from that seed, maybe into a beautiful flower. And so our bodies may just be reduced to a speck of dust, tiniest speck of dust, but God can do the miracle. And there's enough there for God to work on and to raise up the body. Uh, If you want to be very scientific about this, apparently, in the end, science tells us no matter can be totally destroyed. It may be reduced to atoms, but it can never be totally destroyed. I mean, it seems to me that God only needs an atom, and he can raise up the body and... uh, give us that new body which is his purpose. Actually, I had one brother in my present church who suggested to me that with our discovery of DNA and the meaning and significance of that, it may be that God has a DNA blueprint of every believer, and he'll reconstruct that at the resurrection of the body. I want to tell you this, we won't, when we die, simply forever float around in space, okay? Uh, And this is where uh, the teaching that the uh, scripture gives about a new heavens and a new earth is important because if we're going to have these new bodies, if we're going to be again body and soul and Jesus when he comes again will raise up the body, these bodies will need somewhere to live, not just float around but they'll need somewhere to live and so the scripture teaches us about a new heavens and a new earth and teaches us consistently that there will be a renewed and restored creation when Jesus comes again. And it's in that renewed, restored creation that we will live in our resurrected bodies. So many verses in Scripture talk about that. For example, in Isaiah, God says through the prophet, uh, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. In Matthew 19, Jesus speaks of the fact that when uh, he comes again, there will be a regeneration of all creation. Peter in Acts 3 says that Jesus waits in heaven until the time comes for him to restore the whole of creation. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning, awaiting its day of freedom and liberation. Uh, Peter again in, uh, in 2 Peter writes about the fact that there's going to be a dissolution of the present elements of creation in a fire, but out of that fire there will emerge the purified uh, new heavens and new earth. And right at the end of Scripture, in, one, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, uh, John says, I've seen it, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And John has given a vision of the new creation that will come about at the end of all present history. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, this in turn means that there must be a glorified earth in which we are to live in our glorified bodies. Our eternal state is not going to be lived in the heavens, in the air, in some vague nebulous spiritual condition. We are taught that we shall spend our eternity on a glorified earth under the new heavens. The new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. In other words, we can say that heaven, in an eternal sense, is going to be heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. That is where we'll spend our eternity, not as disembodied spirits, for the whole man will be redeemed, the body included. A concrete body must have a concrete world in which to live, and we are told that this will be the case. The whole creation is going to be delivered. All that we know now of the evil in creation will be done away with when the elements will melt with fervent heat and the heavens will be on fire. That will mean the dissolution of the present and the exclusion from the cosmos of all evil and sin. You and I, the redeemed, 
will dwell in our glorified bodies on a glorified earth under the glorified heavens. Hallelujah. So Christ was raised from the dead. Paul says he will raise us up also. He will raise us in our bodies. He will renew creation presently in decay and frustrated. So our living forever in heaven is not vague. It's not that we're going to kind of live in some spiritual vague sense up there, out there somewhere. It's very real, very solid, very definite. Heaven will mean risen bodies living in a restored creation. Now, thirdly, what will we do? Let me tell you, one of the great fears that Christians have about heaven is that forevermore we will sit on a cloud playing uh, guitar, I suppose, these days, singing away on what will seem like an endless bank holiday Monday. All right, and uh, I think Christians are not very excited about heaven because they don't think we'll do very much. All right, and that's one of the great fears about heaven, I believe, uh, that, that Christians have, even if they don't uh, consciously speak it out. Uh, you know, we're going to be there forever, uh, and that's a long time. I mean, what are we going to do forever? Uh, and uh, when preachers tell you we're going to live forever, you need to say to them, well, what are we going to do forever? It's a fair question. So let me address this in the form of some questions. What will we do in heaven? Will we worship? Well, obviously, that's the easiest one to answer, isn't it? Certainly and wonderfully, we will worship. In fact, Revelation gives us pictures of that. I'm um, particularly encouraged by Revelation 20, 21, verse 22, where it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God, that's in heaven, he's speaking in the context of heaven, I did not see a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, in heaven, although we will worship, we will not need special buildings to worship in. And as I'm now in a second church which has a building fund, I am so glad that we will no longer be taking up offerings for buildings. All right? I've been through it for about the last 25 years, and uh, we're going to be delivered from that. Just get that one out of my system, all right? It's a little bit of uh, inward hurt there that I have to kind of work out occasionally. All right, so uh, God and the Lamb, God and the, the, pers- the Godhead will be there with such presence, uh, and such personality, if I can put it like that, that uh, we won't need special buildings. He'll, he'll simply be amongst us, and we will worship. Joni Erickson, or Joni Erickson's Harder, as she's usually now called, uh, some of you will have read some of her books, uh, Quadriplegic Believer. She was uh, injured as a teenager. She uh, dived into some water and uh, hit her head, I think it was, and paralyzed the rest of her body, and she's had a lifetime living as a quadriplegic, she says this, and it brings together the certainty of the new body with the joy of worship in heaven. She says, I haven't been cheated out of being a complete person. I'm just going for a 40-year delay, and God is with me even through that. Being glorified, I know the meaning of that now, It's the time after my death here when I'll be on my feet dancing. You see, she's saying it's not just I'll kind of live on in the spirit. Actually, I'll have a new body and I'll be worshipping. I'll be on my feet dancing. 
You know, it says in Revelation that we'll sing new songs in heaven. That used to worry me a bit. You know, how do we forever sing new songs? Uh, and then I thought about it, and I realized that here we are in the year uh, 2015, more than 2,000 years perhaps now after uh, Christ, or about 2,000 years after Christ was uh, crucified, and all through history, and still today, it seemed in increasing numbers, people are still writing new songs about Jesus. Uh, so why would it not be that in heaven, with all that we'll then see and understand, should there not forever be new songs that will celebrate the wonder of God and the wonder of salvation? Here's another question. I'm really going to answer questions here that I get asked about. Will we work? Now, you may be a bit disappointed to hear this, but almost certainly you will. Um, but I'd like you to think of the alternative if you weren't working. If you go through a graveyard in England, you'll see a lot of gravestones. And what will you see on those gravestones? Very often what you'll say, see is R-I-P, right? rest in peace. Now, is that what you want to do forever? Just think about it. You know, when I've been there 10,000, 10 million years, bright shining as the sun, I have no less days to rest in peace than when I first began. All right, so what are we going to do forever? You know, just rest in peace. You know. I mean, I think that, that sounds awesomely boring to me, that all we ever do is rest in peace. <laughs> when Adam and Eve were created, they were put into a perfect creation. They were put into the Garden of Eden. It was described as paradise, and they were made responsible for actually stewarding the creation. Adam had to actually named the animals, and they were to look after the creation that God had given them, a perfect creation. So even in a perfect paradise, there were things to do. And that must be true for us in heaven. In actual fact, the Bible indicates this. It says in the New Testament things like this. We will be responsible for ruling over cities. Now, you might say, when I get to heaven, the last thing I want is responsibility. But this will be responsibility without pressure, all right? Uh, and obviously, it's metaphorical, because if we are all overseeing cities, I mean, there won't be anybody in the cities because we're just overseeing them. So it's obviously metaphorical, uh, but it speaks of responsibility. Also, we will judge the angels, whatever that may mean. Uh, it's a mysterious verse to me. Uh, Paul says, don't you know that you will judge the angels? And I say, well, I know it because you've told me, but I don't understand it. Why do the angels need to be judged? And people say, oh, it's fallen angels. But it doesn't read like that in context. But in some way, we'll have some responsibility there, and we'll be in a new creation. And if Adam and Eve had to, uh, were instructed to steward and look after paradise, I think we will as well. So I think there'll be work to do. Heaven will not be idle it will be totally fulfilling. What about eating and drinking? This is the popular one I'm asked about. Will we eat and drink? Well, almost certainly we will. In uh, Mark 14, 25, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we're going to celebrate. Please don't say it's just metaphorical. You know, I, I don't think that, uh, that the thought of a meta metaphorical uh, supper of the Lamb, which would be less than suppers that we ex enjoy now, is possible. We're going to have something surely far more glorious. 
And uh, in Revelation 22 and verse 2, it speaks about the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Then people say, well, if we are going to eat in heaven, what will we eat? And uh, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. Now, Isaiah here may be speaking, in fact, prophetically about the new heavens and the new earth. I personally would give it that interpretation. And in Isaiah 11, where uh, the prophet is speaking like this, he says in verse 6, The wolf will, lie, will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. So that is speaking about peace and harmony in the new creation. It's speaking about peace and harmony amongst animals. Uh, They will no longer seek to destroy one another. Everything will be peaceful and harmonious. So on the basis of that, if you talk about eating in heaven, I don't think we'll be able to barbecue the lamb somehow. I don't think we'll be allowed to do that. So I always reckon chocolate's on, but meat is off, all right? So that's the way I see it for heaven. Will, will we build anything? Now, that's a, that's a bit kind of left field, as people sometimes say. Do you think we'll build anything in heaven? I'll tell you what the problem is here. A building seems so material, it seems too physical for heaven. And that's why we would immediately have doubts. If I said to you, will there be music in heaven, you would immediately say yes. And I'll tell you why you would say yes, because music's invisible, and therefore it seems spiritual. So therefore we'll have music. You can't see it, so it must be spiritual. That's how the thought processes go. But a building, I mean, you're talking about putting up a bridge, uh, I mean, that seems much too materialistic. It seems somewhat unspiritual. But in the Bible, God does not separate the physical and the spiritual. We're going to be raised up in the body. It's going to be a new creation, new heavens, new earth. God is a creator, and he gives men and women creative skills. So why should we lose those creative skills in eternity? Would it not make more sense to see that those creative skills will in fact be enhanced? and enriched. Now, I've had the great fortune to travel a lot over the years, and for example, I've been to Table Mountain in uh, South Africa, in Cape Town, and you stand back from that mountain, uh, and you look at it and think, wow, that is just such a fantastic sight. It's a marvelous bit of God's creation. You think right at the tip of Southern Africa, and you've got this wonderful mountain, and then the whole of Africa kind of goes Uh, goes north behind it. It's just an amazing uh, feature to look at, part of the creation of God. But I've just recently been to Dubai. And I tell you, in Dubai, there is some fabulous, fabulous architecture. Talk about the skills of men and women who've designed amazing buildings. And you look there at the tallest building in the world, and it is just an amazing piece of architecture. Men and women's creative skills. So, why shouldn't those creative skills, in fact, be increased in heaven? Here's another question. Will we enjoy anything like culture in heaven? Now, there's a very interesting verse in Revelation 21, which increasingly modern theologians seem to be referring to. 
Uh, I was speaking at a conference in India with a, uh, a, alongside another speaker who's been part of Ravi Zacharias's uh, apologetics movement, and he spent a great deal of time on this verse. It's in Revelation 22, sorry, Revelation 21 and verse 24. Talking about heaven, it says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Kings of the earth will bring their splendor into heaven. John Stott says this, we should not hesitate to affirm that the cultural treasures of the world will enrich the new Jerusalem. Nature is what God gives us. Culture is what human beings make of it. Since human beings are ambiguous, so is their culture. Some is beautiful, good, and true. It is this that will adorn the holy city. And you think of all the fabulous music there is and wonderful art. Think how right at the moment people are lamenting the destruction of that artwork in parts of Syria by Islamic states. But you think of the pictures, the art, the music, the dancing. It's all part of the color of different cultures and different societies. And these verses in Revelation seem to suggest that in a redeemed way, all of that will come into heaven and will actually add to the color and the wonder and the variety of heaven. Now, perhaps the favorite question is this, will we recognize each other? <laughs> and I have no hesitation at all to say, yes, we will. You see, if eternal life has any meaning at all, it must mean that I know I continue to exist. Otherwise, eternal life would have no meaning. And if I know I continue to exist, then I will also be able to see that you continue to exist. I'll know you. And so we will recognize each other. Now, that's a bit of, of a philosophical response, but there is, of course, a biblical uh, teaching on this. If you think of Jesus taking uh, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus glorified in front of them, and Moses and Elijah appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration and being recognized by the three disciples. And you might be very sharp here and say, ah, but how could they have recognized them? Because they'd never seen them before. And the answer is that they were wearing T-shirts that read Moses and Elijah, all right? That's how they recognized them. <laughs> but, the, but the point is that they were recognizable, right? They were recognizable. Have you ever thought about this? You look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus, and in just about every, record, uh, every, every re resurrection account, Jesus is not immediately recognized. Have you ever thought about that? So there in the, the garden, Mary doesn't recognize him at first, thinks it's the gardener until Jesus says, Mary. You think of the two on the Emmaus Road, didn't recognize it was Jesus until he broke bread. And do you think of 500 uh, on the mountain when Jesus appeared before them? And some doubted. I don't think it means that they doubted fundamentally that Jesus rose from the dead, but at first they weren't sure. Is that really him? There was that kind of doubt initially. And then suddenly they see it is Jesus. I think it'll be like that in heaven. All right? So I'll see you in heaven and say, wow, you're looking better than when I last saw you in Herne Bay. <laughs> and you'll say to me, you're looking a lot better, John. All right. What about marriage? Will we marry? Now, if you're a good Bible student, you'll say, no, we won't. But actually, the answer is, no, we won't. And yes, we will. 
Uh -huh, that's the real answer. If you go to Luke chapter 20 and verse 34, uh, Jesus says, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So Jesus says, no, we won't be married in heaven. But think about this. We will be the bride of Christ. <laughs> Actually, there'll be no singles in heaven because every one of us will be caught up into the corporate bride of Christ and Christ will be your husband. And one more that I get asked is, will we travel? And the answer is, almost certainly we will because we will be living in a regenerated universe and we will have, I believe, the whole realm of the infinite riches of Christ to explore for all eternity which will be displayed throughout Christ's regenerated creation. Randy Alcon in a book on heaven says this, it's hard for me to believe that God who made countless cosmic wonders intended that no human eye would ever behold them and that no human should ever set foot on them. The biblical accounts link mankind so closely with the physical universe and link God's celestial heaven so closely with the manifestation of his glory that I believe he intends us to explore the new universe. The universe will be our backyard, a playground and university, always beckoning us on to explore the wealth of God. As one song puts it, God of wonders beyond our galaxy. I believe that in heaven we will be explorers forever. We're exploring now the person of Christ, the meaning of the cross. We've only begun. We will explore forever the infinite riches of Jesus Christ. So I often say to people, why do you think the universe is as big as it is? You know, the scientists tell us about the billions of stars and planets and, you know, the light years that it would take you to travel from one to the other. Your mind begins to spin. I mean... It's just vast beyond your imagining. Why is it so big? I think the answer is this. It has to be big enough for people who will live forever. And we will be released to explore the infinite riches of Jesus Christ displayed throughout his regenerated universe. Think you can get a bit excited about heaven? Jonathan Edwards, who's been mentioned in that video, said this. In heaven... It is the reverse of what is on earth. For there, by length of time, things become more and more youthful. That is more vigorous, more active, more tender, and more beautiful. Wouldn't the cosmetic industry like to bottle that one? So, and understand the importance of your body. 1 Corinthians 12 says, The body is not for sexual immorality. The body, in fact, is a member of Christ. Our body is a member of Christ. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is not our own. Christ bought our body at a price. So the Lord is always for the body. Christ rose in the body. We will also rise in the body and will live in heaven, which will be the new creation, active and fulfilled forever. So believe on Jesus Christ. Believe on the risen Christ. If you believe on the risen Christ, you'll get a life. And it will be everlasting life. And you'll also get a new body. Hallelujah.
Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I want